0: This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This is the Science Podcast for September 9th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up this week, I talk with freelance science writer, Leslie Roberts, about a stalled fight against malaria. About 600,000 people died from the disease in 2020. Leslie visited Mozambique, where the rate of infections and deaths have plateaued, and researchers are trying to figure out why. Also this week, producer Kevin McLean talks with astrobiologists Mikhail Bakay and Jean-Pierre De Vera about their Science Advances paper on estimating the stability of biosignatures. They ask, how long would signs of life stick around on the surface of Mars and what would they look like? Malaria is a terrible disease. It kills hundreds of thousands of children every year. The fight against malaria has grown over the past few decades with funding now in the billions every year. Despite these efforts, progress against malaria is seriously stalled in Southern Africa. Freelance science writer Leslie Roberts wrote a feature this week on why the fight against malaria in Southern Africa has not been paying off or has even reversed despite massive spending. And we're also going to chat about new tools for getting back in the game. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Sarah. There was big progress against malaria, you know, say around the turn of the century, right?
1: Yeah, it was huge. Funding shot up to $3 billion and malaria cases and deaths dropped dramatically. The number of estimated yearly cases fell by 30 percent and the mortality rate dropped 47 percent. But then progress stalled and there were 627,000 deaths in 2020. 600,000 deaths in 2020? Yes. And 240 million cases. But then that, the number's not falling. Mm-hmm. We
0: have a plateau now. Right. And much of this is in Africa. Yes. So you actually went to Mozambique for your reporting. Why did you decide to go there?
1: Mozambique has the fourth highest burden of malaria in the world. And it's a new focus in the past few years of WHO trying to look at high-burden countries where they could have the biggest impact if they could get cases down. And Mozambique is particularly interesting because with all the new investment in malaria control, cases have been going up, not down. So I wanted to look at what is driving that.
0: Yeah. You visited the North and the South. What were some of the differences you saw in the different parts of the country?
1: The South is quite well-developed. It's, it's much richer and malaria is very low there. In the North north and the Central provinces, poverty is rampant. When you go to villages, you're walking down dusty roads. There's no sanitation, no clean water. So it's, it's really a different world
0: malaria is also behaving differently in those two different places.
1: Yes, it's much, much higher in the north and central parts. In the beginning, the country focused on the south, where the malaria burden was low. And they wanted to find a way to eliminate malaria, in part to please their neighbors, South Africa and East Swantini, which, and they also thought it would help increase tourism. But the burden is so much higher in the north that soon funders shifted all their attention there or most of their attention there. And it is geography, topography, poverty. Malaria is very linked to poverty because if you live in one of these metal huts and you don't have window screens, you're totally vulnerable to mosquito bites.
0: And then once you get malaria, you're not able to work. You're not able to do the daily stuff.
1: Right. So it really perpetuates poverty.
0: So in your visit, you looked into what people are doing to figure out why the malaria burden is not decreasing, why there are so many cases, so many deaths. What are some of the reasons that researchers think this is getting worse and not better?
1: One of the really interesting reasons is that mosquitoes are changing their behavior, that there's been so much pressure from bed nets, insecticide-treated bed nets, and indoor spraying with insecticides, spraying of the walls, that mosquitoes are adapting to avoid those. Most malaria was transmitted between midnight and early morning hours. And now mosquitoes are, they're biting in the early evening, they're biting later in the morning, biting outside.
0: Has this been difficult to figure out to show that there's a change
1: in mosquito behavior? Yes, researchers have to go around catching mosquitoes and trying to figure out where they are, when they've had their blood meal. So it's quite tricky.
0: Is this why that one person was sitting in
1: a little building trying to
0: be mosquito bait?
1: Yes, the idea is that he goes into a tent at night outside and he's protected from mosquito bites, but there's a trap in there. And mosquitoes fly in, they're caught by the trap, so he doesn't get malaria. But then the researchers can remove the trap and see which species were there.
0: So some of this is down to mosquito behavior. Some of this is mosquitoes changing where and when they bite or which ones are biting. But are they also resistant to the kinds of chemicals used to kill them or defend
1: against them? Yes, they are. Insecticide resistance is a big problem. And researchers there are trying to study it and figure out where mosquitoes are resistant to what chemical and then use different chemicals.
0: What about giving everybody malaria drugs, whether they're infected or not? That's something that's been tried before, right?
1: It has. And it's very expensive. They tried it in the South where Malaria was low and they were trying to eliminate it as part of a big experiment. But it's also hard to convince people who aren't sick to take malaria medicine. But it seemed to work very well in the South. But in Mozambique, there's just not enough money to try it in other places.
0: So these testing, this experimentation, this research that's being done in the South is difficult to apply it to the other parts of the country where there's less money, and less penetration
1: for services? Yes. And transmission is much higher.
0: It sounds like researchers are getting a handle on why transmission isn't going down, why cases aren't going down. And it's a big mix of factors. Is that going to help figure out how to, to cure people or prevent this disease?
1: It should help. But part of the issue is the interaction of scientists and policymakers that scientists can say there's no point using this insecticide here because the mosquitoes are resistant, but a policymaker might not agree. But they are trying lots of new tools in in small areas in the north and the central part of the country that look very promising. Which ones do you think
0: look promising?
1: One is being done by the Malaria Consortium in collaboration with the government. And it involves going door to door in these little dusty villages, visiting every house and teaching the mother how to give a preventative to their child right before the high season of malaria. Again, it's very expensive, but it's shown very good payoff. Preliminary results showed an 85% drop compared to a control district.
0: In cases in kids, in in malaria-positive
1: children? Yes, 85% fewer.
0: Is there an issue with people participating in experiments or in public health interventions? Like how do they feel about prevention, preventative medicine, stuff like that?
1: So there's a big effort underway, the community mobilization, where one of them I write about and, and saw was religious leaders and communities Holding these discussion groups with people, telling them, "This is where you know malaria comes from mosquitoes and you need to get rid of standing water, and you need to go immediately to get treatment." It seems to help in those communities, but again, that's very labor-intensive. Is
0: this isolated to Mozambique, or is it a more widespread problem in either the southern part of Africa or even further out other parts of the world?
1: It's in the southern part of Africa. Several countries are having the same thing. They had a big decline in malaria, and then it's essentially been a straight line. There might be a few more cases one year, a few less another year, but no real progress.
0: Is this an underreported story? Why did you get a Pulitzer grant for this?
1: I don't think the world is totally aware, so it it is underreported. And it's such a huge killer of children that the Pulitzer Center was was very interested in it.
0: And do you think that this might be a growing problem? It'll extend past Southern Africa?
1: I don't really know.
0: I know you've reported on it in Vietnam and the Delta in the past.
1: Right. Their transmission is is very low, like in Southern Mozambique. So they're trying to eliminate it, just get rid of it entirely. Where in central and northern Mozambique, malaria is too bad to even consider that now. We just want to get the cases and the deaths down.
0: Thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you, Sarah. Leslie Roberts is a freelance science writer. Her reporting on the story was supported by a Pulitzer Center Global Reporting Grant. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next is our new producer, Kevin McLean. He's joined by two researchers to discuss the steps needed for detecting signs of life that may have once existed on Mars. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real world partnerships. Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peace building and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast network of international researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality.
2: When you're looking for something you haven't found yet, there are a lot of different things to consider, where to look, how to look for it. Whether to look for the thing itself or just signs that it could have been there, this all gets even more complicated when you leave our planet. For astrobiologists like Michael Becquet and Jean-Pierre de Vera of the German Aerospace Center, looking for extraterrestrial life means thinking about the spectral signatures of biological molecules. They wrote in Science Advances about an experiment on the International Space Station that looks at the stability of biosignatures in space and what that means for our search for life on Mars. Mikhail and Jean-Pierre, welcome to the Science Podcast. Thank you.
3: good uh, morning,
2: in your case. (laughs) Yeah. So signs of life or biological activity means a lot of different things. What are you talking about when you talk about biosignatures?
4: Well, in general, biosignatures are based on biomolecules, so biological defined organisms, so organisms which are producing specific molecules or are consisting of specific molecules where we have no evidence for other kinds of um, organics. Yeah, So these organics
2: are much more related to life and not just in the prebiotic world. You're looking at signatures in terms of spectroscopy, is that right? Yes, it's right, particularly the Raman spectroscopy, because uh, Raman
4: is chosen for the two missions, uh, Mars missions, like uh, Mars Twenty Twenty with Perseverance, and the upcoming ESA uh, Mars mission ExoMars with um, the Rosalind Franklin rover, and both rovers have the so-called Raman spectroscopy, and we used also this method in our studies.
2: Okay, yeah. So two of the Mars rover missions have these Raman spectrometers as some of the tools they're using to look for signs of life. What's different about Raman spectrometry and, and why is it a good tool for identifying biosignatures?
3: So historically, yeah, Raman spectroscopy uh, is a bit like infrared. So we are looking at the vibrations of the bonds in the, in the molecules or in the minerals. So usually it's very good for mineralogy, but it can uh, it has also the capacity of detecting molecules and in our case biosignatures. So in our study we wanted to uh, to verify that uh, this type of instruments and techniques was uh, capable of uh, detecting uh, molecules when they were mixed with uh, Martian mineral analogs and exposed to the best simulation conditions we can do of Mars and that is in space in Earth
2: orbit uh, outside of the ISS. So you're sending things in, into space, but you're also wanting it to simulate conditions of Mars. So how are you simulating those conditions? I guess you can't, it's not like you can create like a Mars chamber in the lab, right? So you have to use use this lab in space.
3: Yeah, we actually do, uh, in fact, have a uh, Mars simulation chambers. Oh, really? On the ground on Earth, but we have a uh... Lots of different uh, harsh conditions on Mars and on Earth, we are capable of recreating the atmosphere, the temperature cycles, the, some parts of the UV, even though like the UV spectrum of the sun, it's never exactly the same that we can recreate in the lab. And that's exactly the same on in space or on the surface of Mars. But the missing component, of course, is the ionizing radiation component. So the sun is emitting a lot of uh, solar energetic particles, we have galactic cosmic rays, and Mars doesn't have a magnetic field, or it, did, it didn't have it for most of its life. So all the molecules that uh, potentially uh, are on the Martian surface or subsurface, the, radiation, the ionizing radiation are the most deleterious conditions. And this, we can do that in particle accelerators, but then you can use only one energy of one particle at one time. So you lose all this energetic effect of uh, having all the particles at one time. So that's why exposure experiments such as uh, exposed by ESA are very important for astrobiology because you have all the conditions in the best way possible.
4: In particular, we have a compartment in space, which was simulating also the Martian conditions. Particularly because this compartment was filled with gases with the same composition as uh, Mars uh, atmosphere, so uh, it was uh, then exposed. Yeah, the samples were in this kind of compartment filled with gases, Martian analog gases and mass analog minerals, and uh, then exposed to the radiation conditions as uh, Michael has uh, just mentioned.
2: Okay, so. You've got your plan for simulating Mars up in, on the space station, then you set up sample molecules to send to the space station. So what kind of molecules are you sending? We had uh,
3: organisms, so extremophil- extremophile organisms, and uh, then uh, we selected uh, the biomolecules because they are really relevant in the uh, these extremophiles as protective uh, molecules or uh, structural components. So they play uh, a ubiquitous role of protection and, uh, and repair of, uh, during this exposure. They are found in a large number of extremophilic organisms on earth. And uh, if we think about a potential Martian life, They could have used the same functions or molecules that represent the same functions to protect against UV radiation, against ionizing radiation, against desiccation. Uh, Of course, we chose them because they are detectable by Raman spectroscopy. So we know we can detect them under Earth condition by Raman spectroscopy. And so the goal was to see when they are mixed with the Martian regolith analogs and after exposure, can we still detect them? because we know we can detect them on earth but yeah is it the case also
2: on mars great can you just sort of describe to me what exactly did this experiment look like is it a tray of samples that are like layered or how, what what did that look like
4: yeah yeah you're absolutely right it looked like a, a tray it's it's a kind of a tray with a different kind of compartments so you have a number of compartments where you have a different kind of levels inside the compartments so top and bottom, which means that you have even some samples under shadow conditions or completely in the dark. So that we have also kind of space control. You have the control on on ground in the lab, but you have also then space control. And we have even some space control on ground during a simulation of this mission um, in a ground lab. So we have a a number of controls and then the samples complete in space. And they are really like in a kind of box, They're different kind of boxes. On one hand, some compartments are filled with the mass analog gas, yeah, so the atmosphere, yeah, simulating the atmosphere there. And other compartments are completely evacuated, so um, empty space vacuum. And on the top, I have to explain, on the top of these boxes, there are a specific glass filters, which are um, really simulating
2: the radiation income like it is an
4: atmosphere of, of a mass.
2: So molecules have been up there, they've been in the trays, and then they you get them back to Earth. So then what... What did you find out? How, how'd they do? <laughs> so from
3: this uh, particular study, we had uh, seven different uh, molecules and mixed with different <laughs> mineral analogs. The composition of the Martian regoliths that we used, we had a more, uh, one containing more clays and a one containing more sulfates. And we saw that this was very challenging for the detection of these uh, biosignatures because of the overlap of uh, mineral and biogenic bands, for example, in the Raman spectra. So that has to be taken into account for the Mars mission. Then our main finding, of course, is that uh, even though we, we saw that UV radiation destroys more or less uh, all the molecules. Some of them were preserved even with, uh, after 16 months in space, but the main finding is that most of them were still detectable when they were shielded from UV, so when they were just under the surface, a little bit shielded from the UV, they were still completely detectable, even mixed with the matrix and even irradiated with the cosmic rays, solar energetic particles, the temperature cycles,
2: back from the Martian atmosphere, etc. Wow, so you're, you're pretty hopeful that then the service materials on Mars would be, it would provide enough UV protection that any sort of biosignatures would still be detectable below ground.
4: Yeah, we are always careful because we have to think about the time scales, you know, because we have just um, made this experiment 1.5 years in, in space. But there you have uh, billions of years on the surface of Mars with irradiation. But this means, according uh, to what we find, that um, still we have not maybe not to go too much in, in the deep areas of Mars to find something if life started on Mars, to find something on kind of biosignatures yeah, I would say about uh, one meter, two meters. And so the two meters are really good, which were chosen for drilling on Mars.
2: This is something our studies have proven that we are in the good range there. I kind of want to switch gears a little bit here. And since I've got both of you here, one of the things I really wanted to ask about is, so this kind of work, it happens over the course of years. There's tons of like collaboration to get an experiment into space and run it and wait for things to come back. What draws you to this kind of research?
3: I guess it's, of course, the questions uh, astrobiology would like to answer is, are we alone? Is there life elsewhere? So that's always motivating whatever the timescales we are doing to be able to participate in such studies and uh, and see now the progress of the Mars missions and the future Mars sample return. And we are closer than ever of of, uh, being able to answer these questions. And so our... Hopefully our generation will uh, will have some clues at least about uh, what's possible in our solar system. Particularly because we are working with extremophiles, and I have really to emphasize
4: that some of these are very important because some we have studied are doing photosynthesis and even also fixing nitrogen, which means that they are producing oxygen and fixing carbon dioxide. Some of the extremophiles are able to even live under desiccated conditions. Yeah, we are just on one hand searching for life outside, but uh, even looking for these life forms we are studying on Earth, which has the potential to live under other planetary conditions, what they are doing, in, how can we use them under these uh, climate change conditions.
3: And for biotechnology, like the extremophile research, that's what gave us the PCR and uh, like, uh, the enzymes that uh, were extracted from thermophilic organisms and so on. So it's all fundamental research in a sense. And uh, applications are coming well once we have a, a better understanding about these uh, extremophilic organisms.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It's great to have both of you here on the podcast. Michael Baquet is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Planetary Research, and Jean-Pierre Rivera is the head of department for the Microgravity User Support Center at the German Aerospace Center. You can find a link to the article we discussed here today at science.org podcast. Thanks a lot.
0: And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.